called the 809 Restaurant and Lounge in the heart of Inwood, New York City. Welcome to Inwood Artworks On Air, where we meet the musicians, filmmakers, writers, theater makers, and artists of all stripes who make their home here in what we affectionately call upstate Manhattan. I'm your host, Aaron Sims, and today we're turning the spotlight on dancer, choreographer, director, and visual artist Dister Rondon. Dister has danced in movies on VH1 and in national ads for Apple, Verizon, and The Gap, and you've seen his art all over Upper Manhattan. Inside George Washington High School, for example, or at 172nd in Amsterdam, in his mural thanking essential workers. In 2004, Dister created the I Love My Hood project to promote and preserve the Washington Heights he grew up in. I Love My Hood is now a worldwide collective of artists, educators, and activists dedicated to serving the greater good through hip-hop. We're going to talk to him about that and so much more. But first, Dister, welcome to Inwood Artworks On Air. It's great to see you. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Sure thing. So first things first, how are you and how are you doing right now in this new normal? Uh, a slow motion better than no motion. Just moving along. I have no choice. But you are moving. Which I is, am moving. Which yeah. is the choice you've made. Yeah. Well, let's start with something that I know is at the heart of everything you do, hip-hop. <laughs> to many, hip-hop might mean just a certain music or style or dress or attitude, but I think mm-hmm. you'd agree that barely, that barely scratches the surface of how it informs as a cultural soundtrack and as a guide to living a life. Right. And I, f- I feel, in essence, it's a movement. So what does hip-hop mean to you and to the neighborhood we're in right now? Oh, man. Uh, that's a sounds simple, but it's a very layered... I can give you a very layered answer, but I mean, like you said, it, it is a cultural movement, probably the, the biggest artistic revolution that could even embattle the Renaissance. And being here, born and raised in Washington Heights, we are basically in the Mecca and the ground zero of it all. How does hip hop find itself into your style of work in the way you express yourself? Well, it doesn't necessarily find its way into my work. It is my work. It's my language. It's my physical vernacular. It's, yeah, it's me. It's, I get asked questions like that often, and it's, it's strange because uh, it implies usually as if I picked it up at some point, whereas I was born in there. It's like saying, hey, when did you decide to have your mom? <laughs> Just you've been making street art for nearly two decades, and not without some controversy along the way. Uh, have your thoughts about street art changed over the years? Um, I mean, just the term street art is kind of like, you know... Urban it's, art, graffiti. Or, I mean, I definitely despise urban art. What I do is black art, black American art. Urban art is often used, whether it's malicious or not. I mean, usually people are just ignorant to the issues. It just dismisses its root, where it comes from. It's okay to say black. And what I do is black American art. And I see that often, you know, urban dance and urban (laughs) such and such. I'm like, it's painful to see because it just dismisses the actual people. Have you seen a change in black art and its relationship to the uptown community now in this COVID-19 era? Well, because of COVID-19, a lot of businesses, companies, corporations are jumping on the on the wagon, trying to save face. In January, you know, I was still sending proposals to companies saying, hey, I like I would love to paint this on your wall. And, you know, I'd either get ignored or, you know, dismissed or whatever the case is. 
it wouldn't happen. But because now the pressure's on, everybody wants to be part of the fight, visually, or at least on the surface. But when you look up where their donations go politically, it tells a different story. Or what their board is made up of. And not even. I mean, we could have as many brown, black faces on those same boards. It doesn't mean that they're still not, for example, contributing to those same politicians that are perpetuating the bullshit, you know? So, you know, I'm always side-eyeing everything and everyone (laughs) at the end of the day. But it's really good to know who you're in bed with business-wise, so to speak, and knowing what people's intentions are, right? Right, right. I mean, yeah, we could be in bed with, you know, the greatest of people at the end of the day who owns that house. That's the problem. Well, 16 years after the start of I Love My Hood, the collective has spread its message throughout New York City. You've traveled to the Dominican Republic, UK, France, Uruguay, Puerto Rico. Am I leaving any out? Yeah, I mean, I've been around a bunch of other places also, uh, It's been fun. (laughs) Well, it's been a hard time lately for those all over fighting for racial equality and social justice. So I wonder, what role do you see I Love My Hood playing in that struggle today? I've always been excited about this when you started this out, because it's like an uptown movement that's rooted uptown, but it's not necessarily about uptown. uptown, It's transcended that. Right. That's actually the the message I'm trying to put out. First of all, it's it's a brand on itself. I try to separate myself from the brand. Dister's its own brand as well as I Love My Hood. And Dister's just an artist under that umbrella. Same as Arun would be another artist under the I Love My Hood umbrella, so on and so forth. I Love My Hood originally started, I started as, the name was actually Peace, Love, and Merengue. So that was the first murals I was painting was about, that was the tagline, Peace, Love, and Merengue. But it was too niche, you know, and I didn't want to just focus on a specific culture or community. I wanted to focus on community like us, but not just Washington Heights. So it ended up evolving into I Love My Hood. So it could be I Love My Hood, Detroit, I Love My Hood, you know, uh, Miami Beach, I Love My Hood, Pole France, wherever it is. You've been a dancer, a choreographer for over two decades. I want to touch on something that maybe people don't know about you if you're also a teacher. You've taught classes at Rikers, at Broadway Dance Center, Mm -hmm. and too many studios to list. What draws you to teaching? As a dancer, I kind of just stumbled into that as a career. I don't do it professionally anymore, but when you're in that field, it kind of just naturally works itself into teaching. But in that process, I've noticed it's way too many teachers, and I use that term loosely, where they just throw out a bunch of eight counts or a bunch of sets of steps to students that are from all over the world, predominantly Europe and Asia. And they go back home and know nothing of the culture. They're just dressing the part. And it feels strange, it feels awkward, it feels borderline insulting when you know, you're changing your hair to look like something that has no part of your genetic makeup. <laughs> so teaching was really more about not just, hey, who was the first DJ that such and such, or who was the first rapper that, you know, X, Y, Z. It's really more about the social dynamics of hip-hop, because that's what hip-hop is. Whether we like it or not, one of the biggest elements of hip-hop culture is the actual knee on the neck of a marginalized group in neighborhoods like the Bronx, Upper Manhattan, in the early 70s. And when I say neighborhoods like that, because... Hip-hop could have started in Detroit. It could have started in any kinds of those same neighborhoods that were, again, marginalized. 
we just happened to be in the media capital of the world. So we ended up fortunately riding that media train and the technology wave as well. I don't know if I answered your question, but... Uh. No, you did. Absolutely. I think a theme that we can kind of piece together through, whether it's your dancing or it's uh, your teaching or it's your visual art, is that it's very deeply rooted in cultural anthropology. Mm-hmm. It's not just enough to put lines and shapes and, and form right. together. There's a root to them. And I feel like your work has this root going back to hip-hop, going back to who you are as a person, going back to the movement of New York amplifying this movement of black art. Mm-hmm. So where do you think we're going to be at the end of this era? Uh, whenever this vaccine comes, whenever this new world emerges from where we are now? Well, this pandemic you know, didn't really come out of the blue. It was almost predicted because, you know, as humans on this planet, these things happen, right? Unfortunately, well, not even unfortunately, fortunately, you know, as objectively as possible, we deserved everything we got and then some as Americans. Unfortunately, black and brown people are part of that, even though they don't deserve it. But it's opened the curtain to what white America really is. It's not about some random guy yelling the N-word at someone else. It's really about how indifferent legislation can be or is when it comes to morality or other humans. You know, I've said it before, we can have a black president, we can have a thousand congressmen that look like me, but who owns the house? So regarding COVID and, you know, what's going to happen next, I wouldn't be surprised if we're going to see a civil war. People of color have been fighting a war since day one. We've been fighting this war. And I tell my own kids, six and nine years old, you know, we're, this is war. We're fighting a war. We just either don't have the tools to really defend ourselves properly, but we're scraping away at whatever we can. It really just translates into survival. But yeah, it's waking some people up. Again, being as objective as possible, we we definitely deserve it. Could you be more specific? What tools are you referring to? Well, political tools, uh, any kind of resources. Because our racial issues or racism isn't about the person's skin color. It's really about power. There's a specific group that wants to hold on to that power at any cost doesn't matter who gets hurt in the process, who suffers immensely in the process. It's happening now. I mean, we have kids being ripped away from their parents and our entire government is shrugging their shoulders at it. So, yeah, we don't have the tools to really, hey, we can't do that. That's, that's not right. Let's put an end to that. As much as I love seeing people fight the good fight, either through protest or in any form, it's a bit disheartening knowing that, you know, nothing's going to happen. This goes back to the census. They're saying by 2050, the majority will be black and brown people in the United States. 45. 45 now? Yeah. Just got to have more kids. (laughs) There you go. That's 25 years from now. That's not a long time. It's not a long time. I mean, even when we look back and we talk about certain issues such as voting rights, we tend to think of back in the days, black and white and, you know, it's like, we need to remember how close that is to now. And that's the scary part. You know, there are people alive 
today that couldn't vote at that time. So it's, it's not that far along. And then moving forward in 2045, that majority shift, I believe that's what people are really scared of. So do you think trying to see the silver lining of COVID, yes, maybe people now are bringing more people of color onto their boards, hiring more people of color, you know, they're trying to meet a quota for a grant, or if they're doing lip service for media, or they're actually being very truthful and they actually believe in it, because there are some people out there who are actually in companies that do want to help people. Perhaps you see this maybe a foundation for that time then in 25 years? Um, I guess I'm a pessimist at thinking about it because, I mean, how much more evidence do we need? How much more evidence do we need that, especially as Americans, we've really screwed this up? And I say we loosely. <laughs> it's, it's not all of us. So look how long we have here and what our track record is domestically and what we've done to the rest of the world. So to say this will bring the best out of us, really, really, <laughs> it's going to bring the best out of us? Come on. This has taken people to one of the two extremes. Either people are like, holy crap, this is happening in this country. Or people are, you know, they're going to double down. And, you know, masks are just another way for Bill Gates to control us, <laughs> you know? So what is your message to those people who have an actual hand on the steering wheel? Like if you had a message in a bottle that someone opens at the end of the beach kind of thing that, that actually does get through the ocean, what is that? I mean, I'm not really about message. I'd rather hit them with the bottle. That's honestly how I feel. That's change, right? You want to evoke change. I mean, who doesn't? It's, it's change. It's reparations. It's, there's just so much because... We're in a society where we have the luxury and privilege, myself included, to change the channel if we don't like seeing something, to do a podcast for fun, to go paint a mural, whatever the subject matter may be. But there are people suffering, suffering. And it's just amazing that we're in, I mean, I live in Manhattan. We live in Manhattan. This is one of the greatest things about New York that I love, that we can walk by people of so many different paths, right? Including people that are hands on the steering wheel. Very, very powerful people. And yet around that same corner, there's people with severe mental health issues that are being shunned in, in our society. So circling back into my art specifically, I would love to address all those issues in my art, but... Every time I try to do that, you know, the NYPD goes and paints over it or the store owner doesn't want to shake the boat. So it's like, you know, I've, I've been bottlenecked to do, you know, happy little cartoons, you know, and it wasn't until recently where I'm like, what the f*** am I doing? <laughs> yeah. I think that's really important for people to hear that. You're smart enough to know that you have to pay the bills. Mm -hmm. You're smart enough to know that sometimes you make compromises to create because you got mouths to feed. Mm -hmm. And yet at the same time, you are fully aware of what you're doing. In New York City, I'm confident we can eradicate homelessness with the powers that live in Manhattan alone. And that says a lot about us. It, it's painful to see. And, you know, it's like... As an artist, you know, I want to be able to portray that or, or tell those messages. But it's like, you know, my hand keeps getting slapped away every time, you know. Well, Dister, there's so much of what you do that we didn't get a chance to talk about. Is there anything specifically you want to talk about? Anything that we haven't covered? The police. There you go. 
Where can our listeners go to find more about your work and your coming projects? Either ilovemyhood.com or uh, disternyc.com. And portion of every sale of merchandise goes towards actual communities within our neighborhood, whether it's another local artist or another vendor, whatever the case is. Keep the money inside. Very cool. Well, listeners, you can find those links on our Inwood Artworks on our webpage. I want to thank Dister so much. Thank you. Thanks for having me. You bet. For joining me here on this Artist Spotlight episode of In What Artworks On Air, where we meet the musicians, filmmakers, writers, theater makers, and artists of all stripes who make their home here in Upper Manhattan. If you have a moment, please show us some love right now by rating and reviewing this podcast and Apple Podcasts. It really helps. Deep thanks to 809 Restaurant and Lounge here at NYC for hosting us and to HeightSize.com for local uptown promotional support. Support your local businesses, y'all. Everybody needs love. And so please help those mom and pops out there. Be sure to follow us on social media at Inwood Artworks to keep up with all that we do, including the Inwood Film Festival, Filmworks Al Fresco, pop-up art galleries, live performances, and so much more. You can support on air and all our programming by making a tax-free donation at inwoodartworks.nyc slash donate. Inwood Artworks On Air is made possible with funding from NYC and Company Foundation with support from Manhattan Borough President Gail Brewer and the Niska Electronic Media and Film Grant Program in partnership with Wave Farm Media Arts Assistance Fund and the support of Governor Andrew Cuomo and the New York State Legislature. Thank you so much for tuning in. This is Aaron Sims for Inwood Artworks On Air. Thank you.